I'm joined by my great friend Darren Feldman from I'm the here Royals. too, Tom. Don't forget, it's a we, not an I. Oh, we're crying out loud, Brian. He's so picky, you know, Darren. <laughs> I tell you, he's so picky. You say it every time. It's a, it's a, I'm a, you know well, I'm here, right? You know I'm, I'm a, on the line. Yeah, I agree with that. But, you know, <laughs> it is also true that I am. You know, I, I, <laughs> Fine. Okay, Sorry. we're good to go. go. All right. Welcome, everyone, to our podcast. Brian and I are disagreeing about how I introduce <laughs> uh, us, so I'm not going to introduce Brian or myself to this particular <laughs> podcast, but I am going to introduce my, uh, my, our guest, uh, our guest, um, Darren Feldman from Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, Darren, welcome. If you'd like to just describe a little bit about your current role um, and, of course, a little bit about um, the current status of refractory germ cell cancer. Sure. Welcome uh, to everybody who's listening, and thanks to Tom and Brian for having me. Uh, attending at Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, Cancer Center, and I lead the germ cell cancer research group and also participate in the kidney cancer uh, research program. Um, germ cell tumors, uh, you could call it relapsed or refractory disease that progresses after initial cisplatin-based chemotherapy, can be treated generally in one of two ways, either with conventional dose salvage chemotherapy regimens such as uh, paclitaxel, ifosamide, cisplatin, or TIP, or another regimen, uh, uh, vinblastine, ifosamide, uh, and cisplatin, um, um, uh, which is uh, VEIP, um, or, uh, or it can be treated with high-dose chemotherapy and autologous stem cell transplant. And uh, there are varying regimens there as well. In general, it's not known whether one approach is superior to the other, in, especially in terms of overall survival, although many experts have strong opinions on this uh, topic. There's a third very rare group of patients who can be treated with salvage surgery, um, but those are very highly selected patients. So for the majority of patients who progress after first-line chemotherapy, it's either conventional-dose chemotherapy with stem cell, uh, conventional-dose chemotherapy or high-dose chemotherapy with stem cell transplant. And importantly, these patients are still curable, which is different than most other cancers that progress after initial and, chemotherapy. And Darren, I was going to ask in general, response rates to salvage, you know, what percent curability? Let's take the transplant question out of it for a second. What do you, what do you quote a patient in the clinic for sort of clinical outcome, including, including cure rate, just across the board for these regimens? I'd say approximately 50% of patients can still be cured somewhere in that neighborhood. And Darren, talk to me about the different regimes, um, VEIP and TIP. Um, talk to, and a bit about the global perspective on why people are picking one regime or another. Sure. Um, so uh, people, you know, so basically, the um, the choices of of those two regimens um, they were developed uh, both in you know the nineteen between the nineteen seventies and nineteen nineties. To uh, the the tip regimen is um, was you know tried a little bit later. It was tested in a more favorable population. So patients who were treated on a phase two clinical trial with tip at MSK had to have favorable features, meaning they could have only received one prior line of chemotherapy. They had to have a gonadal primary tumor, so a testicular primary, 
and uh, they had to have achieved a favorable response to chemotherapy, meaning either a complete remission after their initial first-line chemotherapy, um, a partial response with negative tumor markers that lasted for at least six months. Those patients had about a, a 63% progression-free uh, survival with median follow-up um, of about six years. And so those were uh, pretty, um, you know, excellent results. On the other hand, the, the VEIP regimen, which uh, was studied in a more broad group of patients, uh, basically patients could have relapsed anywhere more than a month after initial chemotherapy. That showed a, a, respond, a complete response rate of about 50%, but a long-term progression-free rate of only about 25%. So um, whether to choose one or the other, uh, some people prefer TIP because the, the data was superior when comparing across studies. And we all know that that's fraught with, uh, you know, difficulties and limitations, but, um, but it was really a difference in patient selection. Uh, but some people prefer the TIP regimen just because of, of those results. And is that, your, is that the case for you? For us, yes, we use when we use initial salvage conventional dose chemotherapy, we use. Do you tip. get angry when people use it? <laughs> no, no. I, I guess how many people are using VEIP, and, and what's the reason? I mean, I, I don't do this a lot, but I tend to use TIP. I think, like you say, just based on the data and, and more modern regimen. But I'm wondering if there's an opinion out there that well, VEIP is better, and, and here's why. I, I just don't know. I don't think there's anyone who who feels that. IP is better. Some of it may be familiarity with the mm -hmm. regimen, using it uh, for a long time. Um, I think, you know, VIP has been um, has been supported at Indiana University. So um, if uh, people trained in Indiana or um, have, uh, you know, been uh, speaking with investigators in Indiana, they may uh, be partial to VIP. But I don't think that even the proponents of VIP would say that they think it's better than TIP. Mm -hmm. um, we'll come to that later, Darren. So the, <laughs> ne the next question I wanted to ask you was, you've got the same dilemma with high-dose therapy. Is there's a regime with high-dose cisplatin and in the New England Journal of Medicine, but that's not the regime that you use. Do you want to just talk a little bit about the rationale for selection of high-dose therapy? Sure. Um, in terms of which regimen to select? Yes. Okay. So there are varying regimens um, out there. I think the most important thing is that most of the data supports giving a sequential uh, high-dose chemotherapy approach. So older studies and older regimens, they would patients would generally get three cycles of a conventional dose chemotherapy regimen like VIP. And then um, they would get one super mega high dose cycle, usually of three drugs, carboplatin, cyclophosphamide, and etoposide. But um, that was a more toxic uh, treatment. And the mainstay today is really just two drugs, carboplatin and etoposide, for the, for the high dose chemotherapy and to give either two or three high dose cycles. I would say that um, two of the most common regimens used, not the only two used, but two of the most common regimen used are the Indiana regimen, which is two cycles of high-dose carboplatin and etoposide, uh, 
with the carboplatin dosed based on milligrams per meter squared body surface area. Um, and the doses are, are higher uh, in that regimen. And the Memorial Sloan Kettering TICE regimen, which uses high-dose carboplatin and etoposide with the carboplatin dose based on AUC, taking into account renal function, um, and three high-dose cycles being given. The two regimens have never been compared head-to-head. -head. Um, when you look at similar populations of patients, they appear to have very, very similar outcomes. The the memorial regimen, the TICE regimen, was we developed it at the time when we were also developing the TIP regimen. So basically, it was tailored to patients who wouldn't have had the favorable features that we um, select patients receiving TIP. So it was unfavorable features, patients who had an early relapse, had had multiple prior lines of chemotherapy, or had an extragonadal uh, primary. And still, even in that uh, unfavorable population, we achieved a five-year uh, progression-free survival or disease-free survival of approaching uh, 50%. But it sounds like it's still, it's still dealer's choice in terms of the, yeah. the specifics of the transplant regimen, very institutional-based or dealer's choice, kind of like salvage yeah. chemo in general. I think that people should, should select the regimen that they feel most comfortable with or that they have experience with. I think that matters. Sure. Uh, the, you know, just a couple of other differences is that um, we use paclitaxel and ifosamide, that's the TI and TICE, to mobilize and collect the stem cells and to uh, provide some um, stabilization of the disease while we're collecting the stem cells. In, in gen and we do that in, in essentially all patients. Um, in general, the Indiana regimen uh, collects just off of base SF. Uh, growth factors and only uses chemotherapy in a, a small subset of patients for their mobilization. Darren, a rumor has it that there's some randomized data, some from Germany, comparing conventional and high dose therapy already. Do you want to summarize that data and what it means? Well, the the germ there was a German study that compared three cycles of high dose chemotherapy, um, is published by Lorch and JCO three cycles of high-dose chemotherapy compared to one cycle of high-dose chemotherapy. And this is some of the data that supports a sequential approach. But one cycle of high-dose chemotherapy was a three-drug regimen, much like what I described, um, with higher doses of carboplatin and the inclusion of both etoposide and cyclophosphamide. The, um, the three-cycle regimen was just carboplatin and etoposide at um, you know, slightly lower doses. In the end, um, results were similar between the two regimens, but there were more deaths from treatment, treatment-related deaths with the mega one high-dose cycle. So that was further support for the three-cycle um, regimen based on you know, safety, tolerability, and uh, preserved efficacy. In terms of randomized data of conventional dose versus high-dose chemotherapy. Is that what you were? Sorry, I just want to make sure. Is that what you were asking? If you can give us that real quick, that'd be super cool. Okay. So the one study was a European study called IT94. It was published by PICO and I think in Annals in 2005. So that, um, that study randomized patients to receive either four cycles of VIP, so that's etoposide, ifosamide, cisplatin, or VEIP, 
or three cycles of the same regimen followed by one cycle of high-dose carboplatin, etoposide, and cyclophosphamide. And that study found no significant difference in either event-free survival or overall survival. There was a slight trend toward improvement in event-free survival. I think the three-year rates were about 42% versus 35% um, for event-free survival with high-dose versus conventional dose. But the overall survival was exactly the same at 53% uh, for, for both arms. And um, so that, that study uh, basically is the only randomized data we have. And it says, you know, there's no benefit to high-dose chemotherapy in the initial salvage setting. This is second-line setting after, again, progression after first-line chemotherapy. Um, if you allow me, there are a few, few flaw uh, limitations, I should say, of that study that... Uh, you know, is why this question still remains unanswered and why many, you know, some experts believe, again, that uh, high-dose chemotherapy would be initial salvage treatment. So um, one for one, um, that study only used one cycle of high-dose chemotherapy. And as I told you before, most of the effective regimens that we have today, the modern regimens use two or three cycles. So it doesn't rule out sequential therapy being better. The second is that um, in this small study, it was only about 208 patients, um, 100 or so on each arm. 27% of the patients on the arm never got a cycle. So that really limits your ability to be able to interpret a benefit to initial salvage in high-dose chemotherapy. And um, third, patients, uh, there was a high toxic death rate. The death rate and most uh, centers of excellence with high-dose chemotherapy is between 1% and 3%, and it was 7% in that study, which could have obscured the benefit of high-dose chemotherapy. And finally, patients who had an incomplete response to first-line chemo, those are patients we know um, don't do as well with salvage conventional, or we don't think will do as well as with salvage conventional dose chemotherapy. They were excluded from the study. So for all those reasons, um, you know, this, there's limitations and that data conflicts with retrospective data, which has shown a benefit for high-dose chemotherapy, but is basically limited by the fact that there's patient selection issues in any study. So, Darren, I mean, based on that, it sounds like maybe you and probably others aren't convinced that that question has been adequately asked and answered. There's one trial out there. It's sort of non-informative with the flaws you mentioned, obviously, if a good chunk of your patients aren't getting the actual treatment, then it's going to bias towards no difference, right? I mean, that's right. That stands to reason. So, so I don't. If you want to talk about the the Tiger trial now, or what's going on in the field, sort of w where do we go from here? Because I think there's a lot of confusion around the role of high dose therapy in refractory germ cell tumors. Right. So I think um, you know when we when we developed the Tiger trial, and um, you know we wanted to answer this question definitively because we saw that practices varied around the world based on the conflicting data. So, mm -hmm. for example, in Europe, um, in like the UK, high dose was always given third line, never given second line, essentially, uh, because they wanted to spare patients toxicity from high dose and they could salvage them as third line. In other countries, you know, uh, high dose was given as second line. In Indiana, it was given a second line treatment to, to most patients. At Memorial, we were using a hybrid approach, a stratified approach, and favorable patients would get TIP and unfavorable would get high-dose chemotherapy. So really the practice were all over the place and we and that shows that variation in, in practice and, and equal poise in terms of, of this question of what people believe um, is, is better. 
Darren, give me the, the treatments that are in the TIGER trial, how many patients you need and how far we are through the study. Great. So um, the study is randomizing 420 patients, 210 to each arm tip. Uh, is, so the TIGER trial, again, is for patients who progressed after first-line chemotherapy. So it's a second-line study or initial salvage study. It takes all comers. You just have to have progressed after, th after at least three cycles of cisplatin-based chemotherapy, usually BEP, EP, um, one of those two regimens. They're randomized to either four cycles of TIP or high-dose chemotherapy with the TICE regimen. 210 patients will be randomized to each arm. And um, the overall uh, endpoint is overall survival. The primary endpoint is overall survival. Uh, so far, we have 397 out of the 420 patients accrued. Um, and we're hoping that we will uh, complete accrual later this year um, and hoping that this podcast actually will help. Uh, <laughs> it would be the first time it's helped anything. So we're, we're hopeful. <laughs> we're, we're, we're comfortable with that print broad principle. So now, um, Darren, hold on, let me ask a question about the experimental arm or the high dose arm. So it's basically two cycles of, of salvage chemo that you use for stem cell collection and then three three cycles where you're getting chemo and stem cell infusion. Is that right? So it's that sequential transplant approach, I guess. Right. But that the, right? That's right. But the chemo does not include in this study, the chemo in the first two cycles does not include cisplatin. It's just paclitaxel and ibosomide. Got it. Um, Darren, and just go through the, from a recruitment perspective, it's open in Europe and it's open in Australia and it's open in the US. It's an investigator-initiated trial, the NCI and the URTC working together. It's breaking ground from an investigator-initiated trial perspective. Do you want to just give a two-second discussion around how challenging that's been? Yes, and uh, have, I'd be remiss not to thank you for all your help um, with the trial, especially in your, uh, Tom. So you've been a great partner. The, the study um, is non, it's not sponsored by any pharmaceutical company. This is a cooperative group, initiator, uh, investigator-initiated study. Um, it's going on in 13 countries across three continents, North America, Europe, Australia. Um, it's been very challenging because uh, there, was there were not many cooperative, group, if any, cooperative group studies that were conducted outside of uh, uh, North American cooperative group studies that were conducted outside of North America. And the funding that um, the cooperative groups in the U.S. Uh, provide provides for patient recruitment in, in North America, but it does not provide funding for, for Europe. So we had to find a European partner to, um, to join uh, the study. We were fortunate enough to get URTC's involvement, and we got uh, funding for um, organization to help uh, support uh, conduct of the study in Europe. We had to basically rewrite all of the policies about getting investigators approved um, in Europe to be approved to recruit to NCI uh, studies, having them submit their 1572s and all of the uh, states. Yes. So it was a huge, huge <laughs> undertaking. But I know that there have been other studies that have followed in the footsteps and uh, that it's an easier and more streamlined process now. So somebody had to um, break the ground. Unfortunately, it had to be us. <laughs> so, <laughs> congrats, on, congrats on that. I want to ask you a question. I'm looking at a, a, a recent article about the stats, so I may not have this right, but it looks like it's powered for about a 13% difference in two-year PFS with also OS as a secondary endpoint. If it, if it no, meets that, is that, that right or is that 
No, that's wrong. That was actually an okay. old. That was an old paper before the the study is is looking for uh, an improvement in overall survival. Oh, okay. With hazard ratio of about 0.71, so it's a 29% uh, improvement in overall survival um, using, using a cure rate model, um, which is a little bit different than other studies where we just where we assume and we know that there's a baseline number of patients who will be cured just with tip, and then trying to improve upon that with um, right. Now, now, Darren, we, we had a chap called Larry Einhorn on the show, <laughs> and uh, he, 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 he develops this platin. You've probably heard of him. And, and, and Larry, did you, listen, did you listen to his podcast that he made? Because he, he didn't agree with everything you've said today. I think that's fair enough. Would that be, would that be a fair interpretation? Well, first of all, I just want to say that I respect... Um, <laughs> <laughs> here we go i'm excited I, about this bit now i am too i like that <laughs> intro <laughs> i've I him um and i consider him a friend um but you can you can disagree with people that you respect and and you can disagree with friends and um and so yeah i i did hear him speak about the fact that he did not think that there was equal poise in this area because he believes that there's no chance that tip would be better than tice um and that to conduct a randomized trial, you have to feel that um, both arms, either arm could be superior to the other. Um, I guess, why, why do I disagree with that? I mean, that's taking a, a view of only efficacy. And obviously, the other side of the coin is toxicity. And so uh, we know that high-dose chemotherapy is more toxic than conventional-dose chemotherapy. Uh, patients who get high-dose chemotherapy are at risk for hearing loss. Um, a significant portion, probably one out of five, uh, would need a hearing aid at the end of high-dose chemotherapy. There's more neuropathy. There's more admissions to the hospital with myelosuppression and uh, neutropenic colitis. Uh, there's significantly more transfusions. So um, there's a there's a significant more toxicity with high-dose chemotherapy. So if if even if they, if TICE is not superior, if high-dose chemotherapy is not superior, then we're actually harming patients by increasing the toxicity. And so uh, uh, one arm could be, the tip arm could be better in that it, it could be less toxic with equivalent um, efficacy. So that would be my main response to, to this. And, and if that happens, let's say there's a non-significant overall survival difference or, you know, it doesn't meet its primary endpoint and as you say, is more toxic, would you then revert? I mean, would you, would you abandon transplant or what happens at that point? So transplant will still have a role. It will just have a role as third line therapy um, in that situation. If there's no difference in overall survival, then what that's, but let's say there's a difference in progression free survival. So the, the primary endpoint again is overall survival, but let's say, let's just say hypothetically that it shows a benefit in progression free survival, but not overall survival. Um, then that means that most of the patients in the, in the tip arm who are progressing are probably being salvaged with, with high-dose chemotherapy and stem cell transplant as third-line therapy. And the ones who are cured with tip are avoiding the toxicity yeah. of high-dose chemotherapy. So that would be the, the you know, primary thing. But I do want to mention that there's a strata in the study for um, international prognostic factor study group risk groups. So basically, that's the IGCCCG, if you're familiar with that, for first-line therapy. It's the that of second-line therapy. And um, we're going to look, uh, a priori, we plan to look as a secondary endpoint 
at the outcomes in, in three groups, low risk group, intermediate risk group, and a high risk group. And it's possible that we may see a difference in some groups, but not others. And so uh, that could mean that, you know, transplant is preferred for the high risk group mm -hmm. or the high risk group, but not the low risk group. Um, Darren, my last question. If Indiana and Memorial were American football teams, <laughs> what would they be? Well, which teams? Which, which teams well, those, are they? Well, there's obviously a teams. rivalry. I, one gets the impression, having done testis cancer for a while, that there's a rivalry between Memorial and Indiana. And actually, it could be a healthy rivalry. You've both been involved in development of various regimes. And how do you, I'm, I guess the question I'm asking is, how does Memorial perceive Indiana and vice versa? And how constructive is that relationship? So I think we agree on the vast majority of, of things. There's a couple of, there's a three, you know, three or so areas where we may not agree, but we agree on the majority of patients. And I refer patients who are, who come to me that may live in the Midwest or, uh, you know, want an opinion to uh, Dr. Einhorn and his colleagues all the time. And he's referred uh, patients to me. We collaborate on, on trials. We've done a series of uh, trials together and refer in patients who progress after high dose chemotherapy. So I would say we have a really good working relationship and similar goals. We both want what's best for germ cell tumor patients in the field. I don't view us as like, we're not the, the Red Sox versus the Yankees or UNC versus Duke. That was the answer I was looking for. <laughs> and that, um, you know, we, we may have strong opinions about um, certain areas, but, you know, we collaborate on survivorship studies. We're both part of the platinum study. So, uh, you know, um, I, again, I can, I have the utmost respect for Larry, consider him a, a friend, value his opinion. He's given advice to me over the years on patients. And, um, you know, just a couple of things that we have a different opinion. And as, as you said, Darren, I, I don't, I don't have another question, but, you know, first of all, congrats on the tiger study. Like you said, I think you and Tom and others have paved the way for hopefully this kind of model in the future, which at the end of the day, to your point, we're all trying to make the field better, right? We're trying to make advancements and we need to break down some of these barriers, some of these artificial barriers to do so. So um, appreciate the amazing summary of, of the field. I know it's, it's been an area of confusion for me and I think a lot of folks. So that's super helpful. And we look forward to these results, which I guess if you're finishing accrual are probably in the one to two year range. Is that fair? Yeah, I would, I would think it would be somewhere yeah. in 2024, 2025 range, but it's event driven. So it's sure. it, on the events. Yeah. Darren, congratulations. And thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you Thank soon. You.